Welcome to Kurosawa Worth Watching, where we're watching a Kurosawa film and then the films that it inspired. We started with Rashomon last week, and this is the first potentially Rashomon-inspired film, 1995 The Usual Suspects. I'm your host, and all I know is that one day some lawyer dude showed up at my door and said we must create this podcast and his employer would forgive our debts to him. Mm-hmm. My co-host is Guy, who I'm pretty sure is in fact the Kaiser Soje of podcasting. Uh, Hello, Guy. <laughs> Hello, Ron. So, uh, we threw this in actually at the last minute. We're sort of going in in chronological order, and I hadn't really thought of it as a Rashomon film, but you had, I think you had found it on a website, and in, in reading up on it, uh, the director, Brian Singer, called it a combination of double indemnity and Rashomon, so... Uh, seems worth checking out, and I think one of our questions at the end here will be whether or not it's a true Rashomon film. You know what? What makes a Rashomon film? Hmm. Yeah, I had not seen this since it came out. Probably, although you know, I mean, it was a huge film and a huge start of of some careers. You know, Brian Singer. It was his first real film. He did like a student film before this. Christopher McQuarrie wrote it and was in school with Brian Singer, and he won the screenwriting. Academy Award and, you know, uh, Kevin Spacey won mm. Best Supporting Actor. And so for their first serious film out of school, that's pretty amazing. And, and you know, I'll say right up front, I think overall the quality of this film, everything from the casting, as we'll talk about, to the directing, to the light, et cetera, it's just uh, amazing for, for a first film. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, got a lot of, uh, you know, it looks like a triple A Yeah, production. and it was not. It was a low-budget <laughs> Low-budget independent film. It wasn't like one of these cases where a big studio gets behind a new director. You know, they had to go and, and you know, scrape up money to make it happen. Talking about the cast, I mean, obviously all the guys who are the usual suspects, you know, they had to get some reasonable names for and and there's some pretty impressive actors. But the background cast even is great. And some of these people probably weren't so well-known at the time. You know, Giancarlo Esposito, I didn't realize he was in this. So we last saw him in... Do the right thing, <laughs> and I didn't notice him. And is, is he is he He's the, the detective? Bl- <laughs> he is the black detective who uh, is smoking all the time and kind of taking going between scenes. So oh, he doesn't okay. play a major role. He's kind of like kind of glue between some of the scenes. But if you once you notice yeah. him, he actually he does a really good job for it. I mean, you know, some people are background characters, and that's just all they mm-hmm. are, right? But he really uh, uh, really stands out in my opinion. How are they doing? I I didn't even recognize him, and that's uh, that's funny because I've been watching Better Call Saul, so I've been wow. seeing him practically every you know, day for the last. I week haven't watched two. that, and I didn't get too far into um, uh, Breaking, Breaking Bad, Bad. But my God, his career! I mean, he's just been in every you know every really good <laughs> big thing, right? When you think about being in, <laughs> in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul and The um, Mandalorian and. Yeah, I mean, he's just, you know, <laughs> had these incredible roles. Uh, and then there's Dan Hedaya. So he's a classic to be in sort of film noir, you know, the kind of schlubby cop sort. Yeah, he was the general in Alien <laughs> Resurrection. And I thought he was really uh, entertaining in that. And then did you, so do you know who Clark Gregg is? Um, no, so you remember uh, in Marvel, the, the guy who is sort of the, the, um, the shield bureaucrat who goes around and kind of makes things happen and connects people and that sort of thing. He gets killed Uh, in uh, 
the Avengers, and that was uh, and toward the end, and that's one of the things that motivates them to save everybody. Well, I guarantee you recognize them if you look them up. I, I did see the Avengers several years ago now, I think, and that's the one where Hulk picks up Loki yeah, and he's yeah. slamming him around, right? Okay, so Clark Gregg is well known now for because he just was in a bunch of those as kind of a background character, and then in Agents of Shield, the TV show, he was a big part of. Well, he's one of the doctors in the background that does has like two lines in this. <laughs> oh, okay. And then Pete Possilway, who who plays the lawyer in this uh, Kobayashi, I know him now because I I saw him and read up on him. He, his last movie was called The Town, which was a Ben Affleck movie, a really good movie. Uh, would be uh, and you know we're going to yeah. do heist films at one point, and that's one that we'll definitely have to cover in there. And he uh, just an amazing presence. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, uh, I'm sure I've seen him in some other things. I can't think of what, but uh, but yeah, he's definitely a memorable guy once you uh, once you see him on screen. <laughs> and you know, we're not a podcast that gets into who's been canceled for what and everything. Let's just say a lot of cancellation <laughs> happened with people in this movie. But <laughs> the story I'm interested in is the writer Christopher McQuarrie. So he did this film, you know, wins the Academy Award. He went on and did his own film called The Way of the Gun, which I haven't seen yet. But it got it didn't do well and it was sort of critically panned and he was put in movie jail, you know, which is where your last thing didn't do well, so nobody mm. wants to hire you for anything. And, you know, it's gotta be mm. so such a roller coaster ride to win the Academy Award your first time out and then to be considered a failure right off the bat after that, right? And so he he spent years mm. kind of doing this or that. And then he started working with Tom Cruise. And he did some writing on or fixed up some stuff in V for Valkyrie, which, you know, was not a well-considered film. But he and Tom Cruise got along really well, and they kept working together. And he ended up helping out uh, fix some things on uh, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. And then he ended up writing and directing multiple Mission Impossible films, uh, Rogue Nation and Mission Impossible Fallout. And now, now you know, it used to be with Mission Impossible, that their whole deal was every movie would be a different major director who would bring their own, you know, thing to it. But once this Tom Cruise yeah. and he started working together, he's now sort of the official <laughs> Mission Impossible director. And so he's now on top of the world. He's done these incredibly successful films and, uh -huh. and everything. And and so for all the people in this, you know, he had the career I find kind of interesting, you know, for falling down and coming back. And also He's very, very thoughtful. He's learned a lot. Oh, he did one of the, he did the first, at least the first Jack Reacher film also with Tom Cruise. And with each uh. of these films, he's learned lessons and he's gone on to, there's a, a British uh, film podcast called the Empire Podcast. And he's gone on there and done like three hour podcasts about Mission Impossible or about some of the other stuff he's worked on. And it's really fascinating to listen to him because he's just, he, he learns a lot and he expresses very clearly you know, how you make things work, what does and doesn't work and, and all this. Um, for example, in the Mission Impossible films, he talks about, you know, a couple of absolute rules. One is first, they, they come up with all the set pieces they want, you know, the major like stunts or whatever. And then they write the story around that. Mm -hmm. Half the time, they're not even quite done with the story when they start and they often end up rewriting it. And he said when Tom Cruise broke his <laughs> ankle on Mission Impossible Fallout, doing a stunt it was the best thing for the film because they got uh, like six weeks to rewrite it <laughs> at that point <laughs> the other rule he has is that tom cruise that any stunt 
you must absolutely be able to tell that it's Tom Cruise doing it. So unless you can tell, they won't huh. do the stunt. And, you know, he just has certain oh, rules like that. Anyway, just a really thoughtful, really interesting guy, and I recommend people uh, check him out. And if you have not watched the last few Mission Impossible films, I think they're great. Yeah, I uh, I saw one of them. I think maybe it was Fallout, um, and I think I watched it with you, actually. I think it was in a foreign city. <laughs> that's about all I remember. <laughs> well, that's what that's like one of the defining things of every Mission Impossible episode. So, so that doesn't uh, quite okay. narrow it down. <laughs> but it had if it was Fallout, it had Henry Cavill who played Superman. You'd remember him. He had a big mustache and everything. Mm. Yeah, I, uh, he's yep. in The Witcher yep. too, right? Or was yeah. in The Witcher for the first own, two yeah. seasons. Yeah. And he's a big time, well, you'd appreciate this if you didn't know it. He's a big time gamer. And so he was really excited mm. to play The Witcher. And they ended up, you know, and I think one of the reasons he left it is that he really, really wanted it to be accurate to the source material. And the producers, not so much. And, you know, they got into big fights and they've basically insulted him since he left and everything. So. Yeah, they. Uh, I, I watched, I don't know if I watched two seasons or just one and change, but uh, they definitely, uh, they went astray from the way the books are set up. What I had read was he was a fan of the books, mm. not just the video games. And uh, yeah, they kind of kind of went off and did, uh, did their own thing after what seemed like a very promising uh, mm. beginning. But yeah, it's too bad. I guess he's going to be doing Warhammer 40,000 stuff now, though, so that's <laughs> well, kind of that'd fun. Be so getting back to this film after my <laughs> long digression there, uh, I was surprised in reading about it to, that Kevin Spacey was really critical to this film being made and, and, and a lot in it because he, he saw Brian Singer's student film and really liked it and told Brian Singer he wanted to be in whatever he did next. And, you know, Kevin Spacey wasn't as big a deal at the time, obviously, as he became. But having someone like him on your movie then lets you get other people and lets you get financing. And he, because he said, hey, I'll be in a movie, they decided, well, we better come up with a movie. And, you know, they saw the title used of The Usual Suspects as the title of an article, and it's a reference to Casablanca. Casablanca. Yes. And they thought it was a great title for a film, and then they thought, oh, we could do a movie poster with, you know, the people lined up. And that would be great. And then you, they were like, well, if we, you know, what, who would be powerful enough to get these different people in a lineup? And that, that's kind of how the story developed. But um, Kevin Spacey recommended several uh -huh. of the actors for their roles uh, and, you know, just really played a pretty, pretty central role in this. Huh. So, well, we've talked about all sorts of stuff. I guess we can uh, get into the film and, and then we will come back at the end and see what we think here. All righty. We start off at some docks at night. Uh, there's a ship docked there, and there's a guy sitting on the ground uh, near some crates, not far from the ship. And he lights a cigarette, and he also lights a path of gasoline that's leading toward the ship. Up on the upper deck of the ship, there's a man in a fedora and overcoat, a very nice uh, outfit. And he pees through the ship's upper railing and he <laughs> extinguishes the fire on the ground below him. He comes downstairs then. He approaches this guy who's sitting here and uh, this guy's smoking his own cigarette and then the man in the overcoat lights his own as well. 
And he asks this man, whose name is Keaton, he asks how he's doing. He says he can't feel his legs. Finally, uh, after not much more conversation, this man in the overcoat shoots the other guy twice, or at least we hear two shots. Yeah, and it's an important plot point. I realized more even, you know, watching it through a couple times here. It's an important plot point that we don't see him die. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I I can't say anything more about (laughs) it right now, but it may not be. I mean, uh, certainly you think there's an obvious reason for why it must must be a key plot point. Maybe it is, maybe (laughs) it isn't. I'm not, not giving anything away just yet. So then the man in the overcoat drops his cigarette and lights that gas trail that he had just extinguished. Uh, and that ends up blowing up the ship. Now we see a, just a brief segment in an interview room at a courthouse. Uh, Kevin Spacey's sitting there, and he's telling about a truckload of gun parts getting hijacked near Queens. That was what got all this rolling, this whole story we're about to hear. And I started in New York City six weeks ago. There were several uh, arrests made. First, uh, the cops and... Uh, and some federal guys, too, some customs agents. They went into somebody's apartment. This was McManus. He's a guy just lying in bed there with the, no shirt on. He's got a lot of tattoos. Then they go into a garage, and there's a guy named Hockney who's working on a car. And then there's a sidewalk where a flashy dresser named Fenster is just walking around, minding his own business, and the cops come after him. Finally, in a restaurant, they go after Keaton, the man we just saw a moment ago sitting at the docks. Uh, he seems like a businessman, and these uh, these police are interrupting his. Yeah, he's very different than the other ones we've seen, right? He's very well dressed and you know good looking. I mean, it's Gabriel Byrne, and you know clearly like a, a different class than the other folks they've arrested. Yeah, yeah, the other guys are Mc, McManus. Just seems. Uh, couple steps above a meth head, you know, and then Hockney's the mechanic. Fenster, Fenster dress is fleshy, but not necessarily, or flashy, rather, but, uh, but not necessarily uh, right. tastefully. You know, it's a little over the top. So in the restaurant, Keaton has to leave with the police, and a red-haired woman is left behind to deal with these clients. Uh, and she seems to be handling it well, uh, like this is maybe not the first time she's had to deal with something like this. The man doing these arrests is from the from the customs office or from the customs department bureau, whatever it is. Uh, Kuyan is its name. It's spelled K-U-J-A-N, uh, but the J is European, <laughs> I guess, or something. So then we see the police department. There's a line of men. These men who were all just arrested in the flashbacks. They're they're walking down the hall past prison cells to a lineup room. Kevin Spacey is one of them, and he's limping uh, pretty pretty pronouncedly. And once they're in the police lineup, you know, with the feet and inches markers on the wall and all that stuff, each of them has to read a line because uh, it was the, the truck driver who got uh, hijacked. Apparently, he couldn't recognize anyone, but he did hear them mm-hmm. say something. So each man has to, has to read this line, and each one handles it a little differently. McManus is a clown. Uh, Finster is a is a mumbler, very much uh, similar to Boomhauer on <laughs> King of the Hill, uh, although he doesn't have the he doesn't talk like a Texan. But he, he is a he is a yeah. And there's a couple of things about all this. One, and I could tell when I was watching. I don't know if you could tell, but um, 
So I read up on this, and there's a shot in here. When McManus reads his, you know, and it's something like, oh, hands up, you motherfucker, or something, right? And um, mm-hmm. when McManus reads it, they all crack up. And I was watching this, and I'm like, these are the actors cracking up. You know, this is this is not how it was supposed to be shot. So I read up on this, and mm-hmm. this entire – they had to spend forever shooting this, and the actors were constantly cracking each other up. And to the degree that when they went to lunch, Brian Singer sort of upbraided them all saying, we got to get this shot done and the scene done. But they couldn't stop. So they finally just had to use shots where they were cracking up because that's all they had. And, you know, they just decided to to run with it. And so I was kind of proud of myself. I'm like, yeah, I I think that's the actors. The other thing is with Fenster. (laughs) So he thought about this really carefully. And his feeling, uh, this Benicio de Toro, who again has had another person who's had an amazing career. And he realized his character had no purpose in the film except to get killed, as we'll see. And so, and yeah. Spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, there may be a lot of spoilers like that. <laughs> Let's just say, don't get attached to anybody. <laughs> but uh, so he was like, look, if my character doesn't really matter in the film, then I'm just going to swing for the fences, right? And he developed this talking mm-hmm. style, and he worked with a specialist even to do it. But they didn't tell the other actors about it. <laughs> so when he started talking that way, it was a surprise. <laughs> How many the keys, you cocksucker? In English, please. Excuse me. In English. How many the fucking keys, you cocksucker? What the fuck? And they were kind of, you know, like, what the hell's going on here? So there are points in this where where there are these lines that the actors added in where they'd say, what did you say? <laughs> and they actually did it intentionally, and I think it was smart because the, the actors were like, look, if he's going to talk this way, the person watching this is going to think that they need to understand him, and we need to kind of make it clear that they don't need to mm. understand him, right? So. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was all pretty amusing. And it is, uh, I think this may have been oh, yeah. pre-Boomhauer, right? And it is very much that same thing. <laughs> yeah, well, this was 1995, so yeah, I'm thinking King of the Hill might have come a little bit later than that. Huh. Man, it's it just it dang old complicated, you know, man? It's like a dang old Rubik's Cube, man. You like talking about blue, red, man, then you get to one side, and then you like messed up the other side. So each of these guys, after they've gone through the lineup, they're then interviewed. Um, and I didn't really consider that a lot came out of that. You know, we just sort of get that as a little background. You get some personality. And also you get the stylistic thing of, you know, they, they yeah. move between the interviews and back and forth. And, and in general, in the whole film, it's kind of like Pulp Fiction that way. You're going back and forth in time. And that was one of the reasons they had a hard time getting funding because, you know, Companies, uh, production companies just felt like it was going to be too confusing um, to understand what was going on in the film. Mm, yeah. And it's, it's, I don't, I don't think it is. I mean, granted, I've seen it before, so I came in with an advantage, but, uh, but still, it seems like a fairly straightforward. Now, there's a lot to think about once you've seen the yeah, whole and, thing, but it's sort of a separate. And Singer issue. intended it to be a film where you'd understand it more when you watched it more than once, but there are a couple of points, and I'll talk about them as we get there, where, even on like my third time watching it or, you know, my second time for this podcast, um, I was sort of putting, uh, you know, confused, like, wait, is that the guy who fell off the boat? Is that the guy? You know, there's a, some stuff that they really mm, don't yeah. go out of their way to, you know, 
tell you what's going on. <laughs> yeah. And when the interviews are all done, they all end up together in the same single cell. And all of them have heard of each other, except no one except for Keaton has heard of Kent, because he's kind of a small-timer. You know, Kent is Kevin Spacey. I think I, I think I mentioned that already. Verbal Kent, and uh, we'll find out very shortly why they call him that. So this scene has a lot of different exposition in it. I mean, nothing, nothing too ground-shaking, but we find out that that red-haired woman that we saw with Keaton, she's actually a big-shot lawyer. And Keaton seems to be pretty serious about it. It's kind of an ongoing, long-term relationship. And we find out that probably behind this questioning of all of them uh, is probably the federal government in some way. Usually they say if you're on a lineup, you get one real suspect, and then there are four no-names they just dragged in off the street. In this case, every one of these guys has a criminal record that's actually... Uh, relevant to the situation at hand, which was the robbery and uh, robbery of the truck full of gun parts. Keaton and Kent know each other, and Verbal Kent's name is actually Roger Kent, but they call him Verbal because he talks a lot. It's in that annoying talks a lot kind of way, right? It's like you just want him to shut up all the time. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's he's kind of like the, the this one time a band camp <laughs> yeah. kind of uh, you know. Except with him, it's this one time at the Barbershop Quartet in Skokie, <laughs> Illinois. <laughs> Same principle. So, McManus and Fenster. Uh, McManus is the the kind of sleazy guy. And, well, I don't know if sleazy is exactly the right kind word. Kind of insane. But, yeah, I mean, you know. He, <laughs> anyway, he, yeah, he's, he's, a little, he's a little crazy. And then Fenster, who is the mumbler, they have... A job. They, they've worked together before, maybe worked together all the time. They've got a crime planned. Hockney and Verbal Kent both want to hear about it, but Keaton doesn't want to hear about it. Yeah, he's that, that classic, you know, I've gone straight. I don't want to be dragged into all this again. Yeah. So then we see the docks where that ship got blown up, but now it's in, uh, it's in daytime. We see there are smoking burned corpses lined up on the docks. Now, remember, this would be going six weeks forward <laughs> in time for this, uh, for the docks. There's corpses lined up on the dock. There's a detective in a black fedora checking out the scene. And apparently, this would be yep. Giancarlo mm -hmm. Esposito, right? Yeah, and he's a, a very young Giancarlo Esposito. I did not recognize him at all. And I've I've seen him in two television series and a video game, and I still didn't recognize him. The ship is still spewing black smoke. This is the morning after. The also, explosion. this is where, you know, the that detective is told that only two people survived, right? Like a couple dozen people died. Only two survived. Mm, yeah, right. And one of them is Verbal Kent. And the other one, uh, he'll show up a little bit later. Uh, and then a ways off... Uh, you know, we sort of go to a camera spot that's well across the water from the boat, and there's a body just out there floating. So it's definitely a deadly uh, incident. But that's about all we know about it at the moment. Aside from what we saw at the very beginning, we, we saw the guy in the overcoat and fedora uh, light the whole thing up. So maybe it's this detective. He's got a fedora, too. So now we see the police department. Kuyan walks down the hall with a local cop. 
And this this is Jeffrey is his name, and he he's the guy who played the general in Alien Resurrection. He says Kent's lawyer showed up last night, uh, and every charge against Kent was dropped except for a misdemeanor weapons charge. It seems that Kent has powerful friends. He's got immunity from on high. <laughs> Even the governor himself called on his behalf. Kent was very sensitive about being wiretapped and eavesdropped on and all that, so he wouldn't answer anything in the interrogation room, and Kuyan wants to interrogate him, so they're going to end up using Jeff's office for that. Kuyan wants to know a couple of things. He wants to know why 27 men died on that pier, and he wants to be sure that Dean Keaton is dead. <laughs> right, and part of their discussion here is that because Kent got immunity He's about to be released in two hours. So Kuan only has two hours to question him. And, and Dan Hidea, you know, doesn't think it's worth it, doesn't want to be bothered. <laughs> mm -hmm. So then we go to the hospital and the detective, uh, Esposito, he's there and he's visiting a Hungarian who sh survived the fire on the ship. And this poor guy has burns over 60% of his body and he's raving understandably, under the circumstances. He's raving in Hungarian, and amidst all the other stuff he's saying, he he says the words Kaiser Soze, and the detective recognizes that. And he's talking to somebody on the phone when he hears that, and he immediately tells the person he's talking to, he tells them they have to contact two other people at different government agencies. So whatever this Kaiser Soze is, it's something that uh, a lot of people are interested yeah, and, in. Yeah, and the guy in the bed, this is one of the things that I found a little confusing, so it's kind of useful to maybe create a thread here. He's the one that was referenced earlier, like, he, you know, there are only two survivors, um, Kent and this guy. He was shot mm. twice and burned, and they found him right. in the water. And so later on, they're going to – he keeps coming back, and he play, it's an important part. There's just certain parts where – I got confused when they would be talking about someone and I didn't, you know, didn't necessarily realize they were talking about this guy, right? Oh, yeah. So back at Jeffrey's office, uh, Tuyan says that Kent can have some coffee later. Kent wants it now. But, but then Kent starts talking about how he gets dehydrated and once his, he got so dehydrated that his urine just oozed out. He says like <laughs> snot. <laughs> yeah. Just to shut him up, Kuyan sends Jeffrey to go out and get some coffee. And Kent starts talking more. And now he starts rambling about his old barbershop quartet in Skokie, <laughs> Illinois. Uh, but Kuyan cuts him off. Um, outside the office, uh, Jeffrey is listening to a tap. So, so they've set up a tap in his office, even though Kent avoids interrogation rooms specifically to avoid being mm. recorded. Kent talks about Keaton being a good man. You know, Kent and Keaton had known each other, as we already saw when they were in the jail cell together. And Kuyan says he was a piece of shit. And Kent suggests that he, Kuyan might be trying to bait him into you know, losing his composure, but he's not going to fall for it. Kuyan thre threatens Kent with a guy named Ruby that he knows in prison. Uh, the idea is to get Kent to cooperate. Because if Kent doesn't cooperate, Kuyan can tell Ruby that Kent named him in a statement, uh, which is not true. Kent did, doesn't know anything about him or knows of him, right. but he doesn't know any information that he's shared with the police. But Kuyan is, is threatening that he's going to falsely say 
that Kent did rat him out. Kent says he's not a rat. Uh, and then he starts talking about picking coffee beans in <laughs> Guatemala. He, he likes he likes to go off on little tangents. Yeah, he, that's one of the things he says here, and I've been to Guatemala. <laughs> but, uh, one of the things that he says here is that they used to, you know, pick the beans and make the coffee right there, and it was much better than than what they've got at the police station. And I'm like, yeah, that, that's not how you make coffee. <laughs> but anyway, there's a few more steps in coffee. <laughs> Yeah, I think you usually I want to roast it. <laughs> but who knows? Somewhere there's probably people who think uh, unroasted coffee is a delicacy. And I think one thing we didn't mention that that becomes important later is that um, there's a there's a moment that Kent is sitting earlier before he starts getting questioned. There's there's a moment where he's sitting alone in Dan Hedea's, you know, Jeffrey's office. And his eyes are just kind of wandering over the wall, which has all of these posters and, you know, things clipped up. And mm. and that... Yeah, it's like a big cork board. Yeah, and that becomes significant later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So outside the police department, it's nighttime, and Keaton exits with his girlfriend, Edie. They're talking on the steps. Keaton is frustrated. The business deal he was doing at the restaurant is probably going to end up going sour because of all this nonsense. Yeah, and also we learn here, I mean, she like you mentioned she's a high-powered lawyer, so she got him out, right? She, you know, came in and harassed the cops yeah. and got him to release him. Yeah. Although at this point, everybody's yeah. released. Uh, we'll see in just a moment. Because Kent leaves the police department. And he crosses the street, limping. Now, this again, this is flashing back to six mm -hmm. weeks earlier. All the other crooks are hanging around nearby. A couple guys are by the newsstand. They're all they're all watching Keaton from their various positions across the street. Finally, Edie and Keaton walk off, and we get a voiceover by Kent. It says uh, he he tells us that the job was going to take five men, and one of those five men would have to be Keaton. So then we're at Keaton's place, and Kent and Keaton are talking because, you know, as we've already established, they, they, they know each other. Kent says the gang won't take him unless Keaton's part of the deal, and he at least knows what they have in mind. Their plan is to capture an emerald shipment that's being escorted by the police, and we'll, we'll learn more about the details of how the police are escorting it uh, shortly. But the fence is in California. He... He mentions that, but it doesn't seem to quite register because it becomes a point of contention uh, mm. shortly. But uh, Kent tells Keaton that he has a plan. He thinks the plan they're going with is likely to end up requiring that somebody gets killed. Not necessarily one of their game gang, but uh, somebody they might have to kill. Uh, but he has a plan that can work without requiring any killing. Another just kind of important point in this scene is... At one point, Kent kind of insults Keaton's girlfriend. You know, he, he implies uh, – because I think it's actually – it's a very nice apartment. And I think it's actually her apartment. And he implies mm -hmm. that, you know, Keaton is just with her for the nice apartment and stuff. And Keaton punches him. He's mm -hmm. really sensitive about that. And I think his – that's important because, you know, his caring about his girlfriend is a important plot point in the, in the film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then we switch to the airport. We see an airplane arriving. A man comes out of the airport, and he gets right into a police car. And it turns out the police are uh, operating the uh, New York's finest, I think that's they what call it was New called. York's, yeah, finest taxi, taxi service. service, yes. 
And uh, it's a taxi service for uh, disreputable mm-hmm. folks, you know, drug dealers, uh, smugglers, that sort of thing. Uh, they they make sure that people can get to their destinations safely for a considerable mm-hmm. fee, of course. So this guy who's doing the emerald shipment, he gets in. The police cruiser ends up, there's a van in front of it, and the van slows down. The police cruiser has to slam on the brakes. Uh, and coincidentally, but mm-hmm. not at all coincidentally, the uh, to the right side of the uh, police cruiser is a parked van. So the van in front of them sl- timed its brakes, you know, to box them in with, on two sides. Uh, and then in the rear and on the left side, two more vans mm-hmm. pull up. So now the uh, the car's surrounded almost from every angle, not viewable from the rest of the street, because the vans are high enough that they tower over the police cruiser. The whole gang is in the vans, of course, and they're all masked. They smash through the cop car's windshield, and they demand both the package and the money. But finally, they get it. Then they pour gasoline all over the car and light it up. And an interesting thing I noticed here, although it's probably just explained by the fact that this is a uh, taxi service vehicle, uh, the guy who got into the back seat is able to exit the back seat <laughs> immediately without any problem. Where my understanding is, knock on wood, I haven't uh, had to find out firsthand yet. If you're in the backseat of a police car, you don't get handles on Hmm. the inside, or at least not working ones. Anyway, this guy had working handles for whatever reason. It turns out their plan was a success. And not only did they succeed in getting the emeralds and the money, uh, but they also got a lot of police in trouble. This uh, this was a scandal that led to pretty. Yeah, high I think they say like fifty fifty policemen so. got arrested. You know, so they uh, they got their revenge for all the hassle that the the man has given them. So in Hockney's garage, uh, the gang is grouped up there, and McManus and Fenster are planning to go to California to see the fence and you know sell the goods and all that. But criminals, being who they are. Uh, Nobody really trusts them a whole lot, so everybody's going to go to California. Uh, And Keaton says it's a good place to lie low for a while. And McManus toasts verbal, verbal kint, for coming up with the plan, (laughs) uh, which turned out indeed not to involve the need to kill anybody. A couple things about this. Uh, One is that they have the gems sitting there, and they're very green and very shiny, and I felt like, wow, those look pretty fake to me. Then I read that, no, they actually got real gems for (laughs) that scene. So... Uh, no, the other is the whole reason that they go to California is because Gabriel Byrne had, I don't know what, he had some stuff going on in his life and he wasn't going to be able to do the movie unless they shot it in California. So they agreed to do that. So just a little interesting point. Oh, <laughs> very good. Well, it worked out. At Keaton's place, uh, that he and Verbal are there. They're they're waiting. Uh, they're they're going to go catch a plane. It's going to take off pretty soon. Keaton wants to say goodbye to his girlfriend, but she's meeting with a client or a colleague, somebody right now, and he doesn't want to interrupt her. Plane's going to leave soon, so finally Kent just talks him into leaving, and uh, he says she'll understand. Back at Jeff's office, the the police department, uh, again in the modern day, switching time again, Jeff makes a smart remark about what a heartwarming story that is about Keaton leaving his uh, girlfriend without saying goodbye. And 
Kuyan asks him to wait outside, which means he goes back <laughs> into the listening room. Kuyan says uh, to Kent, he says, Keaton was using his girlfriend, yeah, basically what Kent had said himself back <laughs> six weeks ago. And beyond that, he says, uh, Keaton was a cold-blooded bastard and a murderer. And he was a, he was a cop uh, originally, and he was indicted seven times while he was a cop. And oddly enough, the witnesses always either recanted or changed their testimony or, or else they <laughs> died. Finally, he faked his own death two years ago with a warehouse explosion. And even after he faked his death, the case that was the reason for him faking his death I still ended up seeing the witnesses eventually die. Yeah, and there's a thread in the movie, and it'll be an interesting one to talk about at the end, which is the way we, you know, see Gabriel Byrne, he seems to be sincerely trying to get out of crime and run a business and, you know, be straight up. And yet we keep finding out. I mean, the more we find out about his history, it doesn't match up with what we're seeing, you know? So there's an interesting kind of disconnect mm -hmm. here. Oh, yeah. So back in the hospital, and this again is a modern modern day. Uh, the translator arrives and asks the Hungarian about the shootout. The Hungarian doesn't know what they were there to buy or what they were there to, uh, yeah, because it was the Hungarians who came to the docks to pick to do a purchase. He doesn't know what they were there to buy, but it wasn't dope, which is what the cops think it is. He goes on to say that he saw the devil and looked into his eyes. And when he's asked by the detective who the devil was, it turns out it was Kaiser Soze. And this man has actually seen Kaiser Soze, so the, uh, the detective has him describe him to the sketch artists. Back in Jeff's office, Kint says he saw Keaton die. Kuyan says Keaton is using him. Keaton's not dead. He's just mm -hmm. using Kent. Kent says it was a lawyer who started this all, not Keaton. He starts rambling about Skokie and the barbershop <laughs> quartet again. And Kuyan grabs him by the front of his coat. He says, you're going to get no immunity from me. And he threatens to spread his name throughout the criminal community. Uh, so sooner or later, you know, it'll just be a matter of time before he gets a contract put out on him if... Uh, if he doesn't cooperate. So the lawyer's name was Kobayashi, says Kent. And then we uh, we flash back to California, and there's a, a big Japanese-style, uh, I think it's like a kind of shrine on the coast, uh, just sort of set apart like a little, little park type thing. And the gang is gathered there, and their fence, whose name is Redfoot, arrives. Uh, and not only is he there to do fencing, but he's there to offer some more work. He says there's a jeweler, jeweler who carries around a lot of cash. And if you guys get the jewels, give them to me, you guys can keep the cash as your share of the job. And Keaton goes up to Redfoot. He says that they had a mutual acquaintance. And Keaton goes on to say that he shivved him. <laughs> Where they were both in jail, I guess, and, uh, you know. So Keaton says he just wanted him to know up front so that, uh, you know, if they're going to be working together in the future, but it best you find out from him. But, of course, this is also sort of a thinly veiled power play as if to say, you know, don't, uh, <laughs> don't mess with me. I'm not, a, I'm not some chump that you can jerk around. 
Keaton seems to be resisting any more work. He, he doesn't want to take on this job. McManus is kind of skeptical. He thinks Keaton can't resist. He's, you know, it's in his blood, so to speak. And we get a voiceover from Verbal Kent that informs us that, yes, after, after about a day, uh, Keaton was back in. So we switch to a parking garage. Saul, the jeweler, jeweler, he gets into his car, and the gang shows up. Saul's bodyguards are at gunpoint now. Saul's locked in his car. You know, they bash through the windows and all that. And a couple of the gang members start wrestling with the bodyguards. The bodyguards are resisting. But McManus is ready for them. He's dual-wielding pistols. He waits for an opening, and when the two gang members they're wrestling with duck down far enough, he shoots them both, both of these uh, bodyguards simultaneously. Yeah, the interesting thing about this, which, um, so we've seen McManus basically acting insane, you know, and irrational, right? So you would expect him to maybe just start shooting. But here he's actually quite professional, right? He watches very carefully, almost like he's a robot, you know, just waiting for the exact moment mm-hmm. when he can shoot both of these guys at the same time, and, the, and then he does it. So it, he's one of those guys who, in the, you know, when actually doing the job, he sort of brings the goods, even though he might uh, might <laughs> otherwise be uh, worried about him. <laughs> right. And Saul, uh, Saul seems to resist handing over the case. And, uh, you know, Keaton is the one talking to him, and uh, he's, he's pressuring him. But Saul... Saul is being obstinate. Um, he's just sitting there. And uh, so finally, somebody behind Keaton shoots Saul. And it turns out that it's Kent, which was uh, kind of <laughs> unexpected because he was the one who planned the first mm-hmm. mission to not involve mm-hmm. killing. So that adds a little more ambiguity about him. How many other people may he have <laughs> shot over the years? Because all we thought was that he was just a con right. man. This is our first hint that he might be something mm-hmm. darker. So when they leave the parking garage, they, they take the van to to the shore. Um, they, they're in a hurry to get out of there, and they don't even wash the two blood splatters <laughs> off the side of the van, although they may do that at the shore. or they, I don't know. They, they don't really go into the logistics of how they got the van cleaned up before somebody got onto them. But they get to the shore, and they open the case, and it's not full of the jewels they were expecting. It's full of drugs. Or it looks like it's either bags of cocaine or bags of heroin, one or the other. And so next we see the shrine again. This time it's at nighttime. And Keaton is furious. The fence lied to them about what goods they were dealing with. Probably, the, the, the movie doesn't go into detail about this, but it's probably because there's a whole different set of legal penalties involved, whether it's jewels or Well, yeah, and also it just, you know, a suitcase of drugs is not as valuable as a suitcase of jewels, right? Mm Mm-hmm. It depends on the jewels and the drugs. Yeah, but they treat them pretty, you know, like they just throw them around like, what are we supposed to do with this, right? So it doesn't seem to be too significant, you know. The fence shows up, and he explains that he was fed the job by some lawyer, Keaton says he wants to meet him, and the fence says, well, that's uh, that's good because he wants to meet you guys. So then we're back in Jeff's office in the in six weeks in the future, probably more like five and a half weeks in the future now, I guess. The detective, Esposito, he shows up. 
outside the office, uh, you know, the the other cops, uh, Kuyan and Jeff, they go out to to talk to him. We're we're Kent Kent here. Um, The detective asks whether Kent mentioned Kaiser Soze. They say, nope. Kuyan, Kuyan runs back into the office, says to Kent, who's Kaiser Soze? Kent says, oh, fuck. <laughs> and that's the end of the first half of the movie. So the guys are in some kind of fancy pool table room, and they're playing pool and arguing about what to do next. And then a guy with a suitcase and a limey accent shows up. And when earlier the Redfoot guy had said the lawyer uh, had a, was a limey, so a little bit of a clue here. And it turns out that he is Kobayashi, and this is Pete Postlewaite. And he says his employer is happy at the unexpected bonus that Kent killed Saul. So they, you know, his employer had set up the whole deal, but he wasn't expecting people to be killed. But he's happy that they were. <laughs> And, you know, his his employer has one last job for them to do. This is a movie with all sorts of one last jobs, right? And it only takes one day. He doesn't expect them all to live. <laughs> but those who do can split $91 million. So I guess if you're going to do a job where you might not live, you know, $91 million might might make it worth it. <laughs> <laughs> and his boss is Kaiser Soje. And the only one who doesn't seem to know who that is is, is Verbal Kent. Uh, everyone else just kind of goes silent when they hear the name, and he's like, well, who are we talking about? And Kobayashi has brought an offer, but it's not really an offer. It's really an order, <laughs> and they're a little yeah. confused about that. And he says, well, each of you has unknowingly stole from Kaiser Soje, and this is your chance to make it up to him. And then he explains to them how each of them did some job or something that took something that was going to go to Soje, and Soje realizes they didn't know they were doing that, and that's the only reason they're still alive, but he feels they still need to make it up to him. So it was Soje who set up the lineup in New York, and the idea was that Kobayashi was going to meet them at that point, but because Keaton's girlfriend was too effective and got them released earlier than expected, they weren't able to have that meeting. So she helped the other guy. Yeah, it's a little unclear, but probably, yeah, she just got them all released, basically. And Kobayashi kind of explains how Soje's uh, organization works. He says he only works with people temporarily without them knowing that they're pawns of his. And, you know, he says one cannot be betrayed if one has no people. (laughs) (laughs) And if they don't agree to do this job, Soje will have Redfoot testify that they all killed Saul and his guards. So they got to do it. And he explains that Soje has been competing with Argentinians in the narcotics business. And him being Soje, of course, the Argentinians are losing. So they're trying to sell 91 million worth of product in the next three days because that 91 million will sort of revitalize their organization after it's been sort of, you know, apparently kind of torn to shreds by by Kaiser Soje. Well, obviously, Hmm. Soje does not want this to happen. So he wants these folks to stop this deal and he's, they can, if they choose, they could wait till after the deal is made and then take all the money uh, as their reward. And Keaton asks why he shouldn't kill Kobayashi right there. And this, again, you know, we have this sort of 
image of Keaton as this upstanding guy trying to get out of the business, but we also get these flashes where he's a pretty brutal person, and this is one of those moments. When Kobayashi, you know, isn't phased at all, he's never phased, and he just says, here's a gift from my boss, and he leaves them a briefcase. And they open it very carefully like it might be a bomb. But I'm going to say, if it's a bomb, you're standing right there. <laughs> it's, it's not, it doesn't matter if you open it slowly or not if it's a bomb. <laughs> uh, it turns out to be some blueprints of the ship and personalized folders, you know, for each one of them. And for each of them, their entire life story and every crime they've ever done and, you know, all their family members, et cetera, are in these folders. So Kaiser Solje knows everything about all of them. Now, Keaton thinks Kobayashi is Soje. He doesn't think there is a Kaiser Soje. And again, Verbal can't ask who Soje is. And apparently they tell him because now, you know, six weeks in the future in the police room, he now tells Kulan about him um, or Kujan or Kulan. I don't know. I pronounce, I, I heard it as Kulan. So it's Kuyan. Kuyan. <laughs> and he says Soje is supposed to be German. No one has ever known him or seen him. And he mentions something that will come back a couple times. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Mm-hmm. That's, that's Baudelaire, mm-hmm. I believe. I could be wrong. He says, in Turkey, there was a gang of Hungarians who started a mob on the principle that, you know, you don't need all the money. You don't need all the guns or all the people. All you need is the will to do what others are not willing to do, and then you will succeed. That was uh, Colonel Kurtz's. Uh, argument in uh, Apocalypse Now. He was talking about how the Vietnamese had the will that uh, the Americans... (laughs) Okay, good callback. So after they got successful and came into power, they went after Soje, who was kind of a small-time, you know, drug dealer or whatever. And they came to his home when he wasn't there, and they hold his family waiting for him. But they can't just wait. They rape his wife. And we see... It's kind of an interesting scene because we're seeing this all in these... You know, uh, really, it's a flashback. It's sort of, you know, like a sepia tone sort of flashback. And also all the shots are very fast and blurred. So you're just kind of having to put together what happens. Yeah, it's uh, probably about as tastefully as you can show. (laughs) And it's also kind of in a uh, fantasy, you know, epic mode, right? I mean, this is the story of Kaiser Soje and it's kind of, you know. Yeah. So, Soje then comes in, and to show him that they're serious, they slit the throat of one of his boys. It's probably like, you know, 10 or something. And Soje wants to show them that he's serious. So, first he shoots uh, all but one of them in the head, and then he shoots his wife and daughters himself and kills them. So, there's one monster left who is, you know, and he then... Let's that mobster go so he can tell the story of what happened. But Soje then goes after the rest of the mob. We don't see this, but, you know, Verbal Kent just tells us about it. And he kills their kids, their wives, their parents. He burns down their houses. He kills people who are friends or even who owe them money. He just kills everybody having anything to do with them. <laughs> I, I would be really annoyed if somebody owed me money and I got killed for that. <laughs> <laughs> and then Kaiser Soje disappeared. And Kujan asks if Kent believes in Soje. And he says, well, Keaton always said he didn't believe in God, and Soje was the only thing that scared him. And Kent says, I do believe in God, and Soje is the only thing that scares me. (laughs) (laughs) And listening in the other room, 
Dan Hedaya, Jeffrey, ask Giancarlo, and I don't know what Giancarlo's character's name is, so I can only call him Giancarlo. I didn't pick it up either. He asked Giancarlo what he knows about Soze, and he says, well, there's this guy who's been following him like the detective in the Hulk series, we could call him, which is a fun callback to me, because I, I actually have the entire series of the Hulk, and I, I loved that when I was a kid. And, you know, of course, it was... Is that the the yeah, yeah. or Fregno? Kind of like the uh, fugitive. The whole story structure was every week he would go to a new town and some adventure would happen in that town. And meanwhile, this detective was following him and nobody believed the detective that there was this Hulk character, right? Ah. So it's a good reference. <laughs> kind of like yeah, the fugitive. <laughs> I also had the fugitive series <laughs> one of these asides. I started watching through it, and it's really bizarre because the first, like, season or two, all they do is, in the intro, they say, oh, there was a one-armed man who killed his wife, and he went off. And then they just have this really typical story where he shows up in a town and, you know, has an affair with a waitress or something, and, you know, some something happens. But they didn't show the crime they did they just put it in the intro they just talked about it so eventually viewers are frustrated enough that they finally realized they had to show the crime so like 13 episodes in or something um they finally show you what happened you know with the one-armed man and his wife and all the rest of that i just thought it was kind of amusing mm. but you know jean is not sure if soje exists he says it's always just a guy who heard from a guy who got some money from soje so who knows if he exists, but you know, it might be just a scare story, but he says he'll run it up the flagpole to management. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, back in the office, Kent admits he didn't talk about Soje in his testimony. He says no one would have believed him, and he wouldn't have gotten immunity. <laughs> so, and Kujan wants him to testify about Soje, but he refuses because now he's got immunity. So what can Kujan do to him? And besides, he says, look, the immunity was just to deal with you assholes. You know, once I walk out of here... Kaiser Soje is going to kill me, and I know it. There's nothing you mm. can do to, to, to protect. You know, and Kuzan's like, oh, we can protect you. And he's like, oh, yeah, no, you can't protect me. <laughs> like, everybody else is that, dead, that, so that, how are you going to protect me? And back in the hospital, the burned guy is now giving them a visual description of Soje. So he was, you know, the guy was shot and then burned but was found alive. You know, he's, he's the one person who apparently has seen Soje. Meanwhile, Verbal Kent tells Kuzan that Finster left overnight. So they had, you know, Kobayashi had come and told them they had to do this job. And Finster decided he wasn't going to be part of it. And he left overnight and took some of their money. And that night, Kobayashi called them and told them where they could find Finster. It turns out he's on a beach dead. Yeah, I was disappointed because I didn't remember that plot twist or hmm. plot point from the... Uh, I, I mean, I haven't seen the movie for probably a, a decade or more until I rewatched it for this. And you know, of all the characters, he's he was my favorite. So, and he's the one who died. Well, early. and the funny thing is, as we mentioned, oh, then well. one of the reasons he's a favorite is because he died early, which caused him to kind of swing for the fences, which made him more interesting, <laughs> right? So, if if he hadn't died early, his character yeah. wouldn't have been as interesting. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So the crew then fights about whether to bury him in the sand or not and whether they should try and flee. But obviously, they're just going to be killed like Finster was if they try and flee. Keaton says he wants to finish this thing and he wants to take out Kobayashi. Because he, he believes Kobayashi is, is 
Kaiser Soze, right? He doesn't believe Kaiser Soze. Yeah, Kobayashi's the actual origin of this whole mm -hmm. scheme that they're going through. So then we see Kobayashi entering a fancy building with two bodyguards, and the crew is on a some other floor. They're dressed up as repair people, you know, and they've got like a, a tarpaulin and you know ladders around and everything to to make their story seem real. And Ribble can't use the nail gun to jam one of the elevators. This is one of those things where they don't explain it, so you just have to realize, okay, the deal was they wanted to know which elevator he was going to come up in, so they disabled the other elevator to, mm -hmm. to make sure they knew. One of the things that was a little confusing about it is in a big fancy building like this, you have more than two elevators, right? So it was a little confusing to me, but, oh, but that's yeah. the plot here. So, you know, McManus gets in the remaining elevator He's got these dorky glasses on and <laughs> like a little tool chest or something. We don't know what's going to happen. On the ground floor, the elevator arrives and we don't see McManus. Kobayashi gets in with the two guards who are standing right in front of him. And as the elevator goes up, the lights go out and there are two shots. <laughs> and when the lights come back on, the guards are dead. And it turns out McManus is sort of sitting up on top of the elevator. I guess it kind of opened the, the roof of it. Yeah, there's like a service hatch in the door. Yeah, and he shot the guys, and he tells Kobayashi to take it to floor 20. And on the 20th floor, Keaton tells Kobayashi that the answer is no, they're not going to do the job. And Kobayashi says that his employer, Soje, will be disappointed. And Keaton goes off on him. He says there's no Soje, and, you know, Kobayashi better not do anything to them because even if he takes one of them out, they've just proven they can get to him, and so one of them will get him. And they tell him to call off the job, and he says he can't. He's not in control of that. You know, that's his boss. <laughs> and they threaten, you know, to kill him or something, and he says that's ludicrous because if I betrayed my boss, what he would do to me is so much worse than anything he would do to me. <laughs> you can't scare me. <laughs> and McManus now promises he's going to be the one to kill Kobayashi, and he, he actually immediately, you know, makes good on that. He puts his gun up to Kobayashi's head and is about to pull the trigger, and then Kobayashi says that he had Edie, Keaton's girlfriend, the lawyer, put on a case, and that's who he's meeting here in this building. She's flown in to Los Angeles and is here, and Keaton doesn't believe him, so he, so Kobayashi takes them to where she is. They can see her inside a glass room, and there's a bodyguard standing over her, and Kobayashi tells him he's with her 24-7. <laughs> it's clear. And he's keeping her safe, you know, and he doesn't say, but it's an obvious implication. And this is where it's really, the earlier points we mentioned, it's been important that they establish that Keaton really cares about his girlfriend because, you know, this uh, keeps him from killing Kobayashi. Yeah. Kobayashi then details by name what will happen to a relative of each of them if they don't cooperate. So he's like, oh, your cousin Bob is going to have this happen to him and, you know, <laughs> et cetera. <laughs> And he says the boat will be ready on Friday and they should get some rest and be prepared. Next, we see the crew casing the boat. You know, they're sitting in a car. Actually, it's kind of amusing how they filmed this because it was clearly a case where they were saving money. They're technically casing the boat, but all we see is them sitting in a car, right? <laughs> they could be anywhere, which saves you a little <laughs> bit of uh, shooting money. And they oh, can't yeah. figure out how to get into the boat without being detected. Uh, and they also agree they're going to wait until after the payout so they can take the money. And then we switch to night, and Keaton and Kent are hiding a little ways away from the boat. Uh, they're trying to figure out what language they're hearing, which is probably Hungarian. Meanwhile, McManus goes yeah. you know, onto a roof with a sniper rifle. And Hockney, who's Kevin Pollack, 
is near the van that just came in and it must have the the package, you know, the drugs. And a bunch of guys get out of it, drugs or the cash, we don't know. A bunch of guys get out of it and head into the boat. Now, Keaton and Kent are together. And the idea is that Kent is supposed to provide cover for Keaton. But Keaton now tells him to stay behind, not get involved. He wants him to take the money if the things go wrong. And he wants him to go to Keaton's girlfriend and tell her what happened. And then she can, you know, go after Soje in the courts, right? She can take him down there because he's really good. And, mm-hmm. you know, if he's killed, he wants Soje to be taken down. And then Keaton heads to the boat. He's walking along in plain sight. And as he's doing so, McManus is, you know, on that roof. And he sights seven of these different guys to, you know, make sure he can shoot them with his rifle. And he says, Oswald was a fag. (laughs) The idea that he can take out seven people. And Keaton then starts talking to the guys, you know, in front of the boat. And one of them, they're suspicious. They don't know what this guy's doing here. One of them walks around. He's looking for other people. You know, he's very suspicious. Meantime, we see a classic uh, time bomb ticking down with a counter on it. (laughs) And eventually the bomb goes off and Hockney starts shooting people on one side of the boat. And Keaton and McManus take out the guys who are around Keaton. Keaton takes out like two guns and starts shooting and McManus is you know, using a sniper rifle to take out the rest. Once pretty much everyone on the boat seems to be dead, they get on board and start going through it, and they shoot people as they come across them. Meanwhile, Hockney goes to the van, and he opens it up, and he opens a box and finds a whole bunch of money, and he's very happy. (laughs) But of course, the moment he achieves happiness, someone shoots him in the back. And he turns very slowly into a very bright light, so he's kind of, you know, dying probably. And he presumably sees his killer in that moment. Meanwhile, Verbal Kent is still hiding nearby. And in the police station, Kulan asks why he didn't run at that point, since he was kind of safe. He couldn't just ran away. He's like, well, I froze up. I didn't want to be the next finster. You know, so he would have gotten me. And also, it seemed like Keaton might be able to pull this thing off. And... Hidea now slams open the door and it sounds like a gunshot and and verbal Kent kind of, you know, flinches <laughs> when that occurs. It's a weird little moment. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was memorable. <laughs> and um, Hidea, Jeffrey, takes Kulan to Giancarlo in the other room and he explains that they found a body that was thrown clear of the explosion and was shot twice in the head. Now, this is where I was confused because... It sounded like they'd found a new body, but the body they're talking about is the guy who's been in the hospital all this time as we've been watching. So, you know, he's just now telling him Mm. about this person that we've been aware of for the whole film. And says he was a petty smuggler from Argentina who was being extradited. And he's the case that Edie was put on, you know, by Kobayashi or Soje or whatever. This smuggler ratted on 50 people, including Soje, and said he'd seen Soje and could tell them what he looked like. So Kulan now goes back into the room with Verbal Kent, and he's all excited. He feels like he has something on him, and he tells him he now knows that there was no dope on that boat. And we go back to the boat, you know, a few weeks ago, and there's a guy, or I guess now, probably a few days ago, and there's a guy hiding in the hole, and he's freaking out. He knows Soje is there and after him. So, you know, especially if you watch this a couple times, you realize this is that smuggler, who said he could identify Soja, and he's on this boat. Right. McManus and Keaton are separately making their way through the boat, shooting anybody they find, and eventually they meet each other in the engine room, and at this point, Keaton has figured out that there's no coke on the boat, that something's something's wrong here. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of a convenient 
<laughs> shortcut because, uh, you know, and if you're actually using a boat to smuggle drugs, I think there's normally mm-hmm. all kinds of uh, various hiding places. Yeah, that that's true. Up, so. The good old Star Wars uh, smuggling thing, right? Yep. <laughs> uh, McManus runs out of the room and we see Verbal Kent with a gun hiding outside the boat still. And that, that smuggler, uh, his door opens and one of his crew is standing there. But it's a classic shot where he turns out to be dead and falls over. And a shadow comes into the room, or that's what we see. And the guy's looking up and he's insisting, you know, he told them nothing. And then we just hear a shot and we see blood. You know, we get an exterior shot where blood kind of sprays onto a bulkhead window. Mm-hmm. And now the way I saw it, Keaton waves at Kent to join him, or maybe he's waving at him to run away. I'm not sure. It was, it was a little hard to tell. And while Keaton is maybe waiting for Kent or whatever, McManus walks slowly out of a door from the boat. And he's looking really odd, and Keaton wants to know what's up. And McManus says, the strangest thing happened. And then he falls over dead, and there's a classic knife in his neck. (laughs) (laughs) And now Verbal Kent finds Hockney dead outside the van. And he's now freaked out and decides it is time to try and get away. But he can't find the keys. And so he gets out, and there's one of the bad guys bodies nearby and bad guys an interesting phrase (laughs) it's not really any good guys in all this but uh and he's searching the body for keys and while he's doing so he sees keaton you know laying on the on the boat and a man in a suit with a slim build is there and now back in the police station kulan physically goes after kent he's really tired of all this he says he knows more than he's saying and he wants to know why he didn't help his friend keaton at this point and Verbal Kent says he was afraid. He says, you know, he knew that was Kaiser Soje. And how do you shoot the devil in the back? And what happens if you miss? And then just to kind of bring his point home, he raises up one of his arms with his hand being all messed up, you know, and kind of crippled. And it's like, you know, how could he have done anything? Yeah. So he keeps telling his story. And he now sees Soje shoot Keaton and then set the boat on fire. Although when we say he sees him shoot him, he probably didn't quite see it, but he sees Soje shoot. And then he sees him Mm. set the boat on fire. And now Kulan asks Kent about the smuggler, and he tells him that this guy had testified that he could identify Soje. And he explains he now knows that what was actually happening is that the Hungarians were buying the smuggler, not drugs. They were buying the smuggler so he could lead them to Soje. So that's what this was all about. And the attack on the boat was really to kill Mm. the smuggler before he could reveal who Soje was. Kulan now reveals that Edie was just found dead in a hotel, shot twice in the head. And he says Keaton must have set that up, too. Keaton was a real bad guy. And Verbal Kent refuses to believe it. And, you know, as I mentioned, Kulan points out he didn't really see Keaton die. And Keaton left Kent alive so he could tell this story that Keaton wanted and throw them all off the trail. And now Verbal Kent breaks down and admits it was all Keaton. You know, originally he had said that McManus had told them about this New York City taxi job. But actually it was Keaton because he used to be a cop and he wanted to get revenge on the cops. And he also, you know, planned everything else. And Kushan tells him, well, he's got to testify about this, you know, or Keaton is going to get him when he leaves. And Verbal Kent says he's not a rat. He's not going to do it. And he leaves, but he is very upset. <laughs> and he, you know, does this weird thing about, oh, you asshole cops, you know, whatever. 
Now we see at the hospital that the sketch artist is done. You know, the guy who was shot and burned, who now we can understand is the smuggler. He has given them a description of Kaiser Soje. And so they fax the sketch to the police station. Meanwhile, Verbal Kent is being released and given his stuff back. And as he's walking out of the police station, Kuan and Hodaya are debating if they'll ever find Keaton. And... While they're talking, Kulan is looking at the posters. That he's He had been looking at Verbal Kent all this time, so all the posters and everything on the wall had been behind him. And so now he's looking at these posters and just kind of glancing at them, and he starts seeing different words <laughs> that connect to the story mm-hmm. that Verbal Kent told him. You know? <laughs> In particular, starting with uh, there's one that has cor- says Quartet, and then it says Skokie, Illinois below it, which then you know he had said he'd been in this barbershop yeah, i think that's the uh that's the brand name of the bulletin yeah board something like that yeah board, if i remember right uh, yeah and as he you know looks over all these and starts to connect it he's he drops his coffee mug and it breaks and we see uh, on the bottom that it was made by kobayashi porcelain <laughs> <laughs> and interesting thing here so now we get all of these kind of voiceovers and flashbacks as uh, Verbal Kent is leaving the police station and walking along on the sidewalk. And apparently um, it took them a couple weeks to do this because they realized they hadn't clearly communicated to people, you know, that Keaton could be, you know, Kaiser Soje. And now that, you know, Verbal Kent is Kaiser Soje. So eventually they were able to solve it by using these voiceovers and flashbacks to sort of communicate it. And then the audience could, could understand what had mm-hmm. happened. No, these, if I remember right, these are lines yeah. we've actually heard during the course. Yeah, of so, the so we're both hearing things and seeing things, but just kind of going back and showing you stuff so you can understand what's happened. So Kulan now runs out of the office to try and catch Verbal Kent. And as he does so, the fax starts coming in, and Giancarlo just happens to be walking by the fax machine and he picks it up. Meanwhile, Verbal Kent is going down the stairs out front, and he's very crippled. He's walking very slowly. The uh, the facts the facts bears a suspicious resemblance to uh, yeah. Kevin <laughs> and as uh, Verbal Kent walks down the sidewalk, he magically gets less and less crippled <laughs> until he's finally walking normally. <laughs> and then he gets into a car that's driven by the guy we've known as Kobayashi, and they drive away. And it's the end. <laughs> Although we do, and part of that whole flashback thing is the last thing we end on is is back to Verbal Kent saying, you know, the the best trick the devil ever did was to um, make no one believe in him, and then he vanished. You know? um. <laughs> and so uh, it's a pretty dramatic ending, and it does earn it. You know, it it, it makes sense. I was surprised mm-hmm. in the reading to discover that the Kaiser Soche character is based on an actual person. Uh, his name is John List. Uh, mm-hmm. He was an accountant in New Jersey who murdered his entire family, his mother and his wife and his daughters, in 1971. And then he disappeared for two decades. And he caught, he mm-hmm. had created a new identity and gotten married again. And amazingly enough, uh, it was when his story was told on America's Most Wanted that he was found. Actually, America's Most Wanted, as cheesy as that show concept is, got a lot of guilty people found. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I'd heard something about Well, that. it turns yeah. out if you tell hundreds of thousands or millions of people in the country about somebody, someone's going to recognize them, right? <laughs> yeah. And he said it was both because of financial problems as because his family was straying from religion that he killed them all so that, so that they would still go to heaven and mm. he could meet them there. So who knows? <laughs> so, well, what's your general response to the film? Oh, I like it. I remembered that I had liked it when I saw it. Many years ago, but uh, yeah, I, I still like it. <laughs> it's uh, the cast is terrific. Uh, you know, as we mentioned earlier, it looks like uh, it looks like it's your standard big budget Hollywood picture. Even though you say it wasn't made on a big budget, it's got a good uh, the triple A kind mm-hmm. of look to it. Anyway, and the story is fun. It keeps you interested, and uh, I I did a little bit of reading on it last night. Just to see what things I hadn't managed to recognize myself, um, and uh, most of it, you know, most of it's fairly straightforward once you've watched it. You know, it all sort of fits into place. But one thing that I wasn't completely aware of was, you know, you you don't this movie. You could come away from a feeling like so oh, the whole thing was just a big cock mm-hmm. and bull story. There's nothing actually, but actually there are some facts that we have verified independently or you know within within the context of the movie you know like that initial scene where we see kaiser soze kill keaton you know that presumably is something that Mm -hmm. actually happened because that's sort of the omniscient viewpoint given to us even though we don't see all the details so there are things you can know like probably the guy on board the ship really was there because he could identify Kaiser mm-hmm. Soze. Um, yeah, just various things that are sort of corroborated or semi-corroborated by other things within the story. So even though Kent's identity was a lie, there's at least some parts of the story are true. And we can be, I mean, within the context of the movie, <laughs> we can be pretty sure that they're I, I think it's also true that all the people who died in this were people that he felt had wronged him. In some way, right? So even Edie, mm-hmm. right? Well, even though he put her on the, well, maybe I mean, actually, it'd be a good question. So he put her on the case with the smuggler, so that's not her fault. But it's quite possible he killed her just because she messed up his plan by showing up and getting them released before they were supposed to be, right? You know, mm-hmm. so you kind of have to make your own choice about that. But I think everybody who died in this was someone that he felt offended by, for one reason mm-hmm. or another. And you have that kind of weird thing where because he. He's doing this reverse psychology thing, right, where he's treating in his storytelling, he's treating Keaton as this great person who's his friend and, you know, out of the out of the crime business and everything. And Kulan keeps saying, no, he's not. He's a terrible person. And so he's kind of, you know, over overdoing portraying him as a good person in order to get Kulan to respond that way so that at the end he can go, oh, you're right. It really was him, right? <laughs> <laughs> but seemed like he wasn't yeah. trying to set that up for through the whole thing. And when I say it's kind of this weird thing where, and I think it fits into that of, of like, we're seeing Gabriel Byrne, you know, Keaton portrayed as this relatively positive person, certainly the most moral of any of them. And yet everything we hear about him, like he killed all these people in jail, he killed all these other people, like everything you actually hear that he actually did is pretty damn bad. So I think... You have to conclude that mm-hmm. most of that positive stuff was made up, you know, mm-hmm. by verbal slash yeah. Kaiser. <laughs> certainly, 
Certainly a very, a very plausible possibility. <laughs> so would you classify this as a true Rashomon film, right? I mean, part of the Rashomon formula is supposed to be different people telling the same story. So we don't really get that here. We kind of maybe two versions of the story, right? Verbal Kints and Kulans and... Yeah, we get Kints version. And we get, at least at least with that initial scene, we get the director's mm. version. Certainly there is the there is the question of what was true and what wasn't, but we don't really have it from an assortment of people. We have it from mainly one person with a little little tidbit from uh, from the director. Well, yeah, then we have like I think the detective might have his own information that he brings in and so on. So there's uh, the main story though. You like in Russia, man, we hear pretty much everything important that was supposed to have happened recounted by four different people. And here the really the, the story, even the crucial parts of it is really just <laughs> Kent uh, right. telling us. So there is the ambiguity about what was true, what wasn't, but you don't have really conflicting stories. About what happened, you know, the, and really, when you come away from it, you have a pretty good idea of some of the things that happened. You know, not every detail is known, but the the most the most important mm -hmm. points you can be fairly sure about. I think well, I, so. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely not quite the same deal as Rush. The way I agree, although the way I would say it it does kind of match up to Rashomon is I would say you have three versions of the story. You have Verbal Kent's version, which is clearly made up, as we know at the end, mostly made up. You have Kulon's version, right. where he's just really insistent that it was Keaton. And then you essentially have the viewer's version, where you have to decide. Now, that was true in Rashomon, too, right? You kind of had to decide. But they had that yeah. fourth story that was clearly the most realistic version, right? So one difference is that here, yeah. they're not telling, they're not giving you a realistic version. I mean, you have to just kind of decide. Mm. And we find out that Kuyan's version right, is not right. the correct version. Because this isn't even something he witnessed. This is him trying to draw conclusions and drawing the incorrect conclusions that Kent wants him to draw. Yeah. So I might say Rashomon was us all along. <laughs> <laughs> right, so all that aside, is it is it still worth watching? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I mean... Uh, Obviously, for the format that we do this podcast in, with the going through the plot in uh, in some detail, certainly that's going to spoil the full experience uh, of uh, you know never having seen the movie before and not knowing how it's all going to pan out. But it's still probably worth watching, uh, even just for the just for the artistry of it. I, although I'm. I'm the kind of person who can watch a movie again and again mm -hmm. if I like it. Uh, and I liked this one, so it wasn't a big deal for me. And especially after so many years of, you know, it, it's been a well over a decade since I saw it. So it was nice to come back to it. And there's a lot of stuff I had completely forgotten about. So I'd say check it out. And if if we've spoiled it for you, you know, give it a couple of years and then. Check yeah. It now out. I, to be honest, I think especially for a film 
at this of this age at this point. Most people listening to the podcast probably have seen it. And one of the reasons we walk through it is more of a, hey, remember this or remember that or, you know, et cetera. So, um, yeah. uh, but, but you're right. I mean, even if you haven't seen it, it's worth watching. It doesn't matter if it's been spoiled. I think that's an important thing because – you know, like pe- there's, you know, the classic spoiler, right, with Citizen Kane is, oh, you know, um, uh, Rosebud is the sled. Well, sled, if you can't yeah. enjoy the movie knowing that Rosebud is the sled, then the movie is not a good movie, right? I mean, you know, that's the least important <laughs> yeah. thing in that movie. <laughs> and so in this case, like I say, you can even – you can tell someone in front, oh, it's – I mean, you'd really be ruining their experience to tell them that Verbal is Kaiser Soche. But yeah. – even if you tell them up front, they still have to make their own decision about what was true. I mean, that doesn't tell you what mm. the true story was. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely worth watching. And we'd mentioned that also, you know, many TV series have done their version of the Rashomon story. So what we're going to cover next is one of those, and that is X-Files. Uh, they have a story called Jose Shung's From Outer Space from 1996. We're going to see how that holds up. That should be fun. I don't know if I've ever seen a full X-Files Well, you know, we should consider that. It's a really interesting series. Uh, A lot I could talk about, but, uh, uh, well, we'll get there next week. to know how close we came. Kaiser Sose or no Kaiser Sose. If Keaton is alive, he's not coming up again. I'll find him. Waste the time. A room is not a room and it doesn't die. What? Nothing. Man, you're a slob. Yeah, but it all has a system, Dave. Makes sense when you look at it right. You gotta like stand back from it, you know. You wanna see a real horror show? You see my garage. Where's your head, Agent Kuyan? What we need to do is think. Think back. I'm sure you've heard many tall tales. Bricks Marlin. This isn't right. I just want to hear you. It's all there. And I'm telling it straight, I swear. 
Some guy in California, his name is Redfoot. A gift from Mr. Sose. Talk to me, Verbals. What about Redfoot? Mr. Redfoot, you're nothing. Using pawns. Big, fat guy. I mean, like, orca fat. There was a lawyer. What kind of myths and legends of Kobayashi. Sir, I've never seen again. So back when I was making beans in Guatemala, we used to make fresh coffee. I know you thought he was a good man. I know he was good. that works the street for a living will know the name of Verbal Kent. The cripple, did you see him? The cripple, which way did he go? Oh, he, he went out that way. I know you know something. I know you're not so telling you me. Say something. I'm smarter than you, and I'm going to find out what I want to know, whether you like it or not. To a cop, the explanation is never that You know what I'm getting at, Verbal, the truth. Come on, Verbal, no who do you think you're street? No, I know you know something. At all. Somebody with power. There was somebody who was capable not of tracking us in You think a guy like that this close to getting caught? and sticks his head out. You get no guys from me. Because you're stupid, Verbal. Because you're Kaiser a cripple. Sose. What I want to know is who's the gimp. Where you know, you know the whole swear. fucking time. Kaiser oh, Sose. If he comes up for it's anything, he's going to get rid of me. But I'm sure Keaton is dead. I can't feel my legs. Kaiser. First thing I learned on the job, you know what it was? How to spot a murderer. Tell me you got the cripple in there from New York. Yeah. He mentioned Kaiser Sose. Who? After that, my guess is you'll never hear from him again. trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist.